Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, Mary. How'd the move go? Well, the main thing I think, Dan, is that it happened. Finally, there were a few hairy moments where I was a bit worried it might not. But yeah, we're in. We've got internet fitted, so I'm able to join today. And so far, so good. Table to eat off, chairs, those sort of things. Yes. It's a bit of an empty house, but we've got the key things. So we'll fill it gradually, I think. But I think buying one house, though, is enough for me for a while. (laughs) Fair enough. I suppose you might consider yourself a little bit of an expert in residential real estate down in the Winchester area by this point. Yeah, I guess so. I guess you could say that, although that's a pretty niche market. So I'm not quite for how far my expertise will go, but there we go. It is quite niche, isn't it? And we wanted to go a little bit wider than that today. So joining us today, we have for a conversation about global property, delighted to be joined by Head of Real Assets at LCP, Andy Jacobson. Andy, welcome back to the show. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Really interesting to hear what you're saying about residential. And it's actually quite an interesting market at the moment. One of the themes we're seeing in global property. Hopefully, we'll get to touch on residential property in our chat today. Fantastic. And I'll contribute my expertise if it's relevant. (laughs) (laughs) So, Andy, I think we've had you on the show before. So, the listeners are probably familiar with kind of what you do at LCP. The other question we usually ask at the start is what we should know about you that won't appear on your CV. And I think last time your answer was something to do with fancy dress. That ring a bell? That certainly does ring a bell. I am always one for a good fancy dress party. Unfortunately, I've been limited to doing fancy dress over Zoom and wearing a funny hat with a conversation with some of my friends is the way I've gone about it. Not quite the same. I've tried to bring my little boy into the fancy dress club, but he's, as you can imagine, not quite as keen. So <laughs> He's not quite as keen as you. I'd have thought he'd be well up for it. As I say, Dan, I'm really into my fancy dress. So. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I think he's just a bit embarrassed at four years old and there's something to worry about. <laughs> The listeners can't see this right now, but Andy sat there with this awesome Batman mask on. <laughs> it's really working for this show. Anyway, Andy, let's turn to the main topic we're going to talk about today, which is global property. I mean, I guess most UK investors anyway, they're looking at their property allocations. It usually goes without saying that they're talking about UK property. But obviously, I mean, you wrote a piece much earlier in the year, actually before, even before COVID, talking about some of the issues that have been there in UK property. So perhaps without going over obvious ground, perhaps it's just worth recapping some of the themes, the negative themes we've seen that have affected the outlook for UK property. I think that's right. And my view is broadly the same as I'd have discussed when we last spoke. I think there's just some real challenges ahead for UK property investors at the moment, particularly in the types of funds that institutional clients access UK property. First of all, there's some structural trends that have been sort of ticking away for a number of years, but those have really only been accelerated by the pandemic in retail, a little bit in offices. UK property, I think, is particularly exposed to some of those trends. Looking at retail, if you look at a typical open-ended property fund, you'll have anywhere between 20 and 30% of the portfolio in retail, decent chunk in offices spread around the country and sort of industrial. And I think it's that sort of 20, 30% in retail, which is particularly exposed to what's going on with the increase in online consumerism, which has only really been exacerbated by what we see in the pandemic. So that's shopping centers, high street shops, retail warehouses, those kind of things, which tend to be the bedrock of retail exposures within those funds. And I think those are challenged. 
I think the other thing is that UK funds tend to only have or tend to be most popular with domestic institutional clients, particularly pension schemes. And we're seeing pension schemes de-risking. And that, in to some extent or another, means coming out of property over some sort of time frame. And I think there's potential liquidity concerns in the future if a core user of that fund is likely to reduce their holdings over time. So the sort of core growth-orientated UK property, commercial property market fund, I think, still has some challenges ahead. And why do you think the sector split the focus there on retail that we see within specifically the UK market? Is it because it's a particularly old market? Is it a historic reason why there's that level of allocation to that sector that's obviously in structural decline? If you look back 10 years ago, retail was actually the darling of UK property market. I think it was 45% of most portfolios. There was obviously supported consumerism across the UK. And I think looking at the UK market, there's been an oversaturation of shops. There's just too much shopping space. And as the internet and using the internet and shopping over the internet has increased, the demand for that space has just begun to dwindle. That sort of fed through, obviously, in terms of the decline in retail as a proportion of the market in the UK, but it's still a reasonably healthy chunk of UK property portfolios. I've been thinking about this in terms of this prep a little bit. I wonder whether also just the nature of benchmarking of those UK property funds in the UK has been a bit of an issue. So the benchmark weighting is 20, 25%. Now, albeit a lot of these managers have identified the theme are underweighting relative to that benchmark. In reality, they are underweighting a reasonable allocation and they're exposed to the property sectors, say shopping centers, high street, retail warehousing, which is under the most challenge. So I wonder if that's a bit of a factor as well. Where we've seen more defensive at parts of the markets, more being the long lease property funds. So they tend to be supermarkets, which I think are a little bit more resilient to the sort of structural trend that we're sort of seeing. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? The retail trend, obviously, by no means a new issue. And it's close to home, isn't it? Because I walk down my local high street and there's an Edinburgh Woolen Mill, for example, it's just closed down. They've emptied out. That's one of the biggest premises in my local high street. So you, you sort of see it quite visibly. I think it's really easy to underestimate the sheer scale of it. I mean, there's, as I was talking to you a second ago, there's a website that I follow that looks at the number of retail bankruptcies and stores that have been affected. That's showing about 50 companies that have failed so far this year. I think there's headlines just today that Peacock and Jaeger both may be among those and over 4,000 stores this year alone getting on for 20,000 stores in the last decade that just don't exist anymore, basically. So it's colossal. that is absolutely vast, isn't it? And clearly, there's no way that that isn't going to affect the ultimate owners of that land. And as you say, Andy, I suppose it's just a really large scale redistribution of how land is used. And that quite painful for the investors, I guess. And sadly, the pandemic, I think, has accelerated the trend. I mean, we're seeing it prior to the pandemic anyway. And the reality is with lockdowns, putting significant cash flow pressure on a lot of retail businesses. It's been enough or will be enough to push a lot over the edge. So I think there's some significant restructuring in that market. And really, it's only it's the retailers that can adapt to that change and adapt for the different ways in that we want to shop and really create a reason for people to actually go into the shops, make a destination, perhaps surround it with entertainment or beverage or, or restaurants, that kind of thing. It's those kinds of strategies that are more likely to be successful. But Irrespective of that, I think it's a really challenging time for retail across the board. So if we maybe turn to sort of global property, I know when we spoke before back in May, you mentioned that one of the ideas that you're seeing clients explore is investing in property on a more global basis. And we didn't have time to talk in much detail about it then. But can you just maybe give a quick overview on the sort of key reasons why that looks attractive? I suppose the key challenge there would be 
we've just laid out a pretty negative case for retail. What is so good about global property that overcomes that a little bit? So I think that by expanding or looking at global, you're essentially expanding the opportunity set, the range of attractive investment opportunities to a much broader set of opportunities. And I think that's really the key factor. Essentially, by broadening that opportunity set, I think you're much better set up to deal with some of the structural challenges that we're seeing impact the way that people are using property across the globe, including retail. So let's, let's break it down a little bit. If you look at a global, typical global property portfolio, it looks very different, I think, to what you'd see in the UK. First of all, let's talk about retail. So if we're looking at bricks and mortar property, the kinds of strategies that I prefer are open-ended funds. They are pretty mature portfolio where the majority of your expected return comes from the income. So it's sort of core property portfolios. Within that kind of fund, the rather than sort of 20 to 30 percent, as we're seeing in the UK, you're seeing retail allocations more in the region of maybe 15 percent. I think global property managers have generally adapted or been able to take into account the structural theme that's been occurring over a number of years and adapt their portfolio allocation more quickly, largely taking advantage of the much wider opportunity set that's available to them. Looking under the bonnet of that, I think if you're looking at what the kinds of retail investments they're investing in, there's usually a decent chunk. I can think of a couple of portfolios where it's about half, where the retail exposure is more in supermarkets, groceries, necessity-based consumerism, which I think is a little bit more resilient to the structural trends. Essentially, we all need to go buy food or buy necessity-based. And I think people, there's still a reasonable amount of actually going out to physical stores to actually do that. And we've seen that in the UK where supermarkets income from, from that particular subsect of the market has been pretty resilient over the pandemic. I think the other area that they're focusing on, or what you tend to see, is the sort of really blue chip, large shopping centers. Now, don't get me wrong, they're clearly going through, there's a lot of challenges, short-term challenges at the moment, a lot of them being impacted by lockdowns. But I think destination shopping, if you're going to be holding a retail asset, is the only really area that I think that's got some longevity. So those kinds of shopping experiences where people want to actually go to a destination to spend their time, to meet friends, go to the cinema go out for a drink, that kind of thing. So it's really looking at the really blue chip, absolutely best quality kinds of shopping centers out there. And the global property managers, again, because they're fishing across the world, across Europe, across Asia, across the US, in all the global cities, I think are better immunized to hold retail, which I think has got some more sustainability. Don't get me wrong, I think in the short term, even those investments are challenged, but I think the high likelihood of being more resilient. And again, just going back to the first point, they're much smaller component of the portfolio, you know, sort of five to 10%. And just picking up on that, then, I guess, I mean, there's so many angles here that I'd love to get into about global property. But in terms of the sectors, then, if it's, what do you say, five, 10% in retail, how should we think about the other sectors? I think what you said in the UK, the UK tends to be pretty much these three main legs of it being retail, offices, industrial, call it roughly equally between them, more or less. How should we think of that when it comes to global? So if we look at global, so we've talked about retail, I think offices are a big component of the portfolio still. I think the kinds of offices that are sort of features of global portfolios tend to be on global cities, large CBDs, the really large, best in class, quite dominant kind of sites that really attracting blue chip, sort of blue chip companies, company HQs, that kind of thing, in the likes of obviously London, but then looking at San Francisco, New York, Chicago, then out into Melbourne, Tokyo, and then across 
Munich, Berlin, Paris, those kinds of sort of locations. That's a big component of the portfolio. One of the other interesting aspects of global portfolios, I think there's much higher focus on alternative sectors or what we're classed as alternatives in the UK or from a UK context. Residential property, <laughs> interesting what you mentioned at the start of this conversation, residential property is a big theme of portfolios, anywhere between 20 and 30% of the portfolio. And what I mean by that, it's often purpose-built rental accommodation, often in urban locations, but not exclusively, essentially providing good quality rental accommodation for people who want to live and work in the cities for work reasons, but you know, obviously for social reasons as well. It's a nascent market in the UK and it is beginning to grow. I'm seeing more residential opportunities in the UK. But if you look out in the US and parts of Europe in particular, it's a much more mature market. And certainly looking at residential property investment through the pandemic has been much more resilient with rental income at the sort of 90% level compared to normal which is certainly towards the high end. So that's a really interesting area. And I think that theme will be resilient and continue to be resilient looking forward. And then there's some other alternative sectors, particularly in the US, which I think are also really interesting and very happy to sort of run through those if you're interested. Please, yeah. Well, so looking at the US, the US is a really interesting market. So it's the largest property market. It's a really liquid property market. And the REITs market, so the listed property market is really well developed in that market. And what you tend to find is the listed market has shifted itself away from traditional property sectors, offices, industrials, and retail, and focus more on alternatives, things like data centers. So it's essentially the property that's used to support all the big tech companies. And things like self-storage is quite big. Student accommodation, providing housing accommodation for elderly people, which is obviously a key demographic trend. Biotech and medical offices, that kind of thing. Those are all quite material components of the listed property market and that is beginning to feed through into the unlisted property market the kinds of funds unlisted funds that we're interested in so it's those kinds of investment opportunities which are much more prominent i think in those portfolios and where i think they are the right side of demographic and structural trends that we're seeing at the moment in terms of the demand and usage of property into the future and as a result i think global property managers are a better place to access some of those opportunities certainly as opposed to just taking a purely domestic UK-based strategy. That's a stupid question maybe, but do any of them go as far as things like farmland and agriculture or ports and stuff like that and sort of almost get into the infrastructure area? Not really. I think the only area where there's a bit of crossover is in telecommunications towers, where there's sort of a little bit of a sort of cross of the barrier. But in terms of the property funds, it is defined as property. It's a physical building where you're sourcing a tenant, entering into some lease over predefined term and you're taking in the rental income for the usage of that building so that's the theme but it's just trying to identify those particular sectors and property types which have either structural undersupply or demand that are tying into demographic shifts and have got long-term sustainable income prospects without the requirement to plow in loads of capital to make buildings fit for purpose and that's the kind of themes that we're looking for within property investment and again just by looking across the globe, I think there's just more scope for managers to find opportunities and find the right kinds of investments that meet sort of property-like returns. So what sort of country split are we looking at? Because, I mean, you mentioned some particularly interesting ideas, themes to exploit in the US. Does this go as far as emerging markets or are we limited? Looking at the sort of investable stock, so the sort of worldwide investable property universe, I think, is something in the region of above 30 trillion. UK, looking at it only makes four or five percent of the market. So it already gives that sort of disparity in terms of 
the size of the pond that you're fishing in. The numbers are broadly similar to global stock markets in UK. Stock markets is a proportion of that. Then I think the US stock market is about 30 trillion, isn't it? Which is so the global maybe a little bit bigger, and the UK is more percentage of it. So I mean, think of that as the counterpoint. I mean, here's a question for you. I mean, if Mary and Dan, you're sort of speaking to your clients and they're thinking about allocating to an active equity strategy or, I don't know, an active bond strategy, what would you advise them in terms of global versus domestic? I feel like you know the answer already, Andy. <laughs> exactly. The theme is exactly the same for global property. I think that's really important. And I think what's happened is that the options for UK investors to access global property have just broadened over the last few years. So that's really why we're talking about it now. But just going back to your earlier question, Mary, sorry, in terms of where you're allocating, I definitely prefer more liquid developed markets. So that's in the US, in Asia and Europe, not really emerging markets. I think as a property investor, you need liquidity in the market. It's a liquid asset, but it needs to be traded regularly. You need deep markets, largely means focusing on the global cities, I think, rather than looking at the sort of more secondary markets within countries. Also, you have to take into account the rights of the landlord. You need established rule of law, regulations, stable valuation mechanisms and processes, all of which protect you as a landlord and your interest in the property. And so it does basically lend itself to sort of developed OECD kind of markets. And again, the sort of core strategies that we tend to prefer, again, look at the sort of more established property markets, even within those regions. So that's where we're sort of looking to invest. The managers sort of work to a rough benchmark between US, Europe and stuff, or is it really, really just vary? I mean, to some extent, it does vary a little bit, but I mean, the US is a big component of the market. I think often that's a new in the region of 40, 50% of portfolios, and then you probably have 25 to 30% in each of Europe and Asia. Asian markets obviously include Australia as well, often gets forgotten Australia, Japan, Korea. If I'm honest, less so in China, not excluded, but obviously some of the major cities in China, I think, are eligible, but that's a smaller component of strategy in Asia. One difficulty here, surely, is just the difficulty of the range. I mean, you've just referred to a huge variety of different markets, and we're joking about Mary's knowledge of the Winchester resi market, but even talking about Australia, then you've got tons of different cities there. And even being an expert in Sydney, presumably, is quite hard because that's a huge market in itself. So, I mean, how can these managers possibly get the coverage to get to know these private deals across all of these different markets? Because that's the difference with equities, I guess, isn't it? When equities are listed, you can sit in London and analyze equities anywhere. Presumably, you can't sit in London and analyze the property in Sydney suburbs or something like that. I totally agree with you. And that, if I'm honest, that's been probably the biggest barrier to there being a sort of evolution of global property investment or a truly global approach today. It really... Success within property requires local on the ground knowledge of working practices, but also property is a very people orientated business. It's about speaking to agents, speaking to banks, working out where the deals are, where there's development finance required, what occupiers really need within the market. So it really needs that on the ground presence. And the kinds of managers that I think that you need to look for if you're going to this market really have to have established a local property presence in various markets across the globe including on the ground people in-house in the US, Europe and Asia. And so I think that's really fundamental. And then obviously then looking for a way to knit it all together so that there's a mechanism for them to cross compare themes and ideas and trends to make sure that they're allocating to the right markets. And that must set a hugely high bar for the amount they need in these funds. Presumably you can't be running a fund with a couple of hundred million dollars in it to support that kind of the thing. So you must be talking about really big funds. You're right. And I can think of one fund that 
has been used by some of our clients, the sort of underlying bricks and mortar portfolio is 30 billion in gross terms. And if you compare that to, I think the largest sort of UK property fund, it's a long lease property fund, it's in the region of four to 5 billion. So the actual size of the the stock or, or the size of the portfolio is much larger. The other way you can go about this, and again, it's certainly got its merits in my view, is taking more of a fund to fund approach. So again, I think you still need to have the local knowledge expertise as the fund to fund manager. So have your network spread worldwide so that you can really understand the market and put together a coherent picture of where the attractive opportunities are across sectors, just reflecting the fact that property is a really idiosyncratic investment asset class, but then accessing that through regional or local or sector specialists across different countries is another way to do it. But by that nature, even with, I can think of another fund of fund, it's in the region of 5 billion on fund of fund level. But then if you look underneath the bonnet, that's exposure to a significant multiple of that in terms of actual bricks and mortar property. So they are very, very well diversified. And roughly how many positions would you expect to see in a global property portfolio? Again, it really depends on the strategy. Looking at sort of just the sort of physical approach, I think the strategy sort of migrates towards or is attracted towards sort of larger lot sizes. So I think average lot size in one fund I can think of is in the region of 100 to 150 million. So that's 100 to 200 properties, 200 properties, I think, looking doing the maths overall. So it's still a large number of properties, but these properties are much larger. And again, this particular manager really favors dominant properties across the sectors. That's part of the strategy. It's, it's very core prime focused. But oddly enough, generally with all the turbulence going on today, so this flight to quality trend, people looking for as much certainty as they can get in terms of allocating to property. I've seen that trend. And so that kind of strategy in this market, whilst not immune to what's going on, it's only a bit more resilient than I think if you're taking a little bit more property level risk overall. So you mentioned before, mainly in relation to not investing in emerging markets, that rights of the landlord are really important, which I completely agree with. Just thinking about, I guess, the reactions of different countries to the COVID pandemic and potentially relaxing certain sort of rights, if you like, on landlords to demand rent, that sort of thing. Have you seen much of a trend of that across different countries and has it differed between countries? I suppose all I'm really aware of is what's happened here in the UK. I think each different country will have its own policy. I think it'd be difficult for me to speak with a lot of certainty on terms of exactly what individual countries have done and if there's a different trend. I mean, clearly what's going on in the US, for example, is very much state-driven. Different states are driving, obviously, the pandemic policy and what different employers and rights of landlords do with regards to collecting rent. So it hasn't been a central theme. But as I say, there is some commonality in some of the trends that we're seeing. It's just obviously different markets responding in different ways to adapting the trends and adapting to whatever the post-COVID world looks like. Going global, I think, and taking into account the idiosyncratic nature of property investment, I think just better future-proof portfolios, I think, against those kinds of systematic change. Reality is property at its fundamental level is driven by, at a local market level, what's going on in terms of demographics, supply of property, and then occupier demand. And all those sort of characteristics are different across different markets, across different sectors. And it's from a property manager perspective, it's about identifying them and deploying your investment in those where you think you're more likely to benefit from those trends. I guess in terms of future-proofing, one of the other sort of angles that we often look at is ESG. What are the managers doing on the global spectrum on this? I think it's a really important feature, actually. And I think it's 
becoming much more or more prominently a linchpin of a successful strategies in my view. Clearly, officers is a great example, I think. I think this is a, this is an area where it's, it's pretty obvious. So office is a really interesting sector at the moment. It's probably the sector where there's less of a consensus on the direction of travel. So prior to the pandemic, I think you would have said that the trend was probably densification. So packing more people into offices, less sort of space. I think the pandemic's probably changed that trend. Flexible working clearly is a theme. And also the adapting in a post-COVID world to providing sufficient space for social distancing, but also collaboration of teams and people. And so that lends itself very much to an ESG angle. I think the kinds of offices which are likely to be more successful are probably those that are more modern, probably more recently built, certainly are attractive to more progressive tenants. So sort of offices that provide a reason for workforces to want to come into the office. It's that experience angle again, isn't it? Just like we saw with retail. It's good amenities. It's perhaps charging points. It's somewhere to put your bike, but very good meeting space so you can actually interact with clients well. It's those kinds of trends. Those kinds of tenants want really efficient buildings. They want modern buildings, lots of light. And so I think it very much lends into this ESG theme that modern purpose-built, best-in-class kind of offices in CBDs, where it's an attractive place for people to go into work, are more likely to have future long-term success. And certainly that's the theme from some of the managers I'm speaking to. And that very much segues quite nicely in terms of what our investors are acquiring from an ESG angle in terms of you know, modern buildings. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the theme on cities is an interesting one, because you can sort of push back on that. And you can make, obviously, a little bit of a bearish case for cities. And I mean, I take what you said about offices, but at the same time, you can make the argument that companies are going to be using less office space than they have been. And maybe the built stock is already a bit of an overhang of that. And also a lot of those cities you mentioned, they've had massive run-ups in property prices over the last decade or two already. So there's two questions, I suppose. The future of cities in a post-COVID world and also the future prospects for some of those markets that have already had very good price appreciation. I mean, I think to some extent that is the central thrust of where there's a bit of debate about offices. My view is that there is going to be demand for people going in and collaborating in office. I mean, I don't know if you've got it your own perspective, but I'm certainly missing being able to go into the office and actually meet my colleagues, Zoom, and these kinds of conversations are great and they do a job, but you do miss out. And I think that seems to be a trend or sorry, a theme that's coming with conversations I've had is that there is a demand to go into work as long as it's safe and as long as it's sort of practical and there's a reason to go in. In reality, I think you're right, Dan, it does put sort of that sort of urban trend, the trend for high demand for us is, um, there's a challenge to it. But then I think it's about finding, making sure that you're allocating to the right kind of offices that are really going to be in demand for tenants. So that's, I say, high quality buildings, targeting large blue chip corporates who really still want to have that office space for the purpose of their business. And so I think it's about distinguishing between those kinds of offices that are attractive. I completely agree with you that it does put some offices that are perhaps a little older, that perhaps require more refurbishment, more money to be spent to bring them up to spec. It puts those kinds of offices more into challenge. And I think that's what we'll see more than just a whole scale. Actually, people aren't going to want to use offices anymore. I just don't believe that that is the case. So Andy, you've sold me on the idea of global property. I guess the next question is exactly how I access this. You've referred, I think, through some of your answers to different ways of accessing, but could you just summarise the different options? So, I mean, I think what I've really been talking about to now is a sort of unlisted property funds. So that's, again, I have a preference for open-ended funds that invest across a broad range of 
market, focusing on actually owning bricks and mortar property where essentially you're acting as the landlord. The other way you could access it is through the listed market, for example. So essentially owning listed property companies. And what those are essentially are companies, their business is around owning properties. So the vast majority of the revenue comes from taking in rents from underlying tenants. Attractive for investment because most of that rent needs to be distributed back to shareholders through dividends. So you actually tend to find that listed property companies tend to have a better dividend yield than mainstream equities overall. And again, that's another way to access global property and indeed some of the attractive themes that I've talked about earlier. So for example, if you look at the US listed market, I think it's in excess of 50% of the market is focused on alternative sectors. So I think it's less than 50% is on the sort of traditional offices, industrials and retail that have sort of been the bedrock of UK portfolios. So that's another way to do it. Of course, there is a bit of a trade-off if you're going down the listed routes. They are daily priced mark to market. So they tend to be much more volatile and over the short term have a much higher correlation with equities. Although if you do look over the long term, I think there's about a 70% correlation if you look over a long term. But you don't get that sort of nice diversification effect from going down the unlisted routes, where in part, that's largely just to the way that those funds are valued. You look at unlisted property fund, for example, tend to be quarterly priced. The valuations are appraisal based. So independent values go out and assess the value of properties once every three months. And that gives a natural smoothing effect to the nature of the returns. But from an investor, that is actually appealing because that helps with diversification. But that's a trade-off. Great reason to go into listed though is the liquidity. <laughs> You're not stuck in a long queue. If you want to modify your allocation, it's quite easy. There's pretty low entry costs and exit costs from using listed property. I think the other reason is going into listed property, I think there's merits in an active approach. Buying and selling different property companies is low cost and easy to do. And so taking an active manager and finding a good active manager, they can be on the right side of some of these structural and demographic themes and can sort of obviously orientate your portfolio towards those which have got some more long-term longevity. Andy, as we start to wrap up, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this conversation about global property? Broadening your horizons, giving yourself a wide opportunity set as possible. I think that's really established within equities, particularly, I think, in debt. If you look at real estate as the third asset class, and it certainly is by the sort of allocation and behind those two, there's no reason you can't apply that same premise and theme for property investment. There are options available now that weren't really there five years ago. Andy, we always ask our guests what they think the most underappreciated thing is about investing. What's underappreciated is what it means to invest, to be a long-term investor. I think there's a lot of noise. Pandemic is a great example. There's a lot going on. Everyone's got their own view. The reality is that if liquid investments are successful, it is over the long term. And it's just trying to orientate your thinking that way. It's pretty hard, though to do and i'm conscious of that but so but try think long term i think is probably my top tip great and that comes through a little bit in terms of what you said about global portfolios being better able to think long term about these structural shifts i think so yeah. than the uk portfolios which are a little bit sort of hamstrung great lovely note to finish on andy any good recommendations books you've read recently podcasts and things you want to leave us with one podcast i've been listening to is pod save america which again has been very much about Excellent what's been going on with action but even prior to that in terms of the run-up to it so that's been occupying my spare time. But as I say, whether it's been a productive use of my spare time, I think that's a question. We'll give you a call in four years when that knowledge becomes relevant again. Great stuff. <laughs>
Andy, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Nice to speak to you. Take care. Thanks very much, Andy. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.